Hey you guys, Flickers of Fear time once again. So imagine, if you will, a largely forgotten late 80s sort of psychological horror film that also has sci-fi and paranormal elements that at times kind of feels very much like a low-budget proto-inception uh, that also tries to dabble in as many different subgenres as possible, uh, containing flavors of altered states, um, alien, from beyond, nightmare on Elm Street, um, a haunted house movie, like a seance and possession type movie, a uh, body horror type flick, a uh, desert road trip slasher. There's a little bit of that in there too. Mad scientist kind of thing. And then sprinkle that on top with just a pinch of Lovecraftian something or other. And you might come close to imagining the bizarre what the fuckery that is the 1989 movie Nightwish. I mean... This movie is kind of like, it's like the filmic equivalent of one of those kind of trendy like stunt milkshakes or something like that, where it's like, hey, let's put an entire slice of red velvet cake in a blender with a bacon cheeseburger and some coffee ice cream. And then let's top the whole thing with like a blueberry filled donut and a dill pickle and macadamia nuts and like a fucking edible tinfoil swan or like you know whatever it's like it's something like that <laughs> and like some fried chicken on top of it it's like you know like bites of it are probably delicious and you can't really help but admire the audacity that went into making it but you're not entirely sure all of the parts go together that's essentially what this movie is like now i i gotta say i can't remember exactly why this movie stood out to me as I was kind of scrolling through Tubi looking for films to review. This is a, an experience I have quite a bit if you've seen some of my other reviews like for Cameron's Closet and stuff. Like I don't think I ever saw this movie back in the day. If I did I remembered absolutely nothing about it. Um, I do remember kind of like spotting the cover at the video store occasionally again like back in the day. I probably never rented it back then because I thought it was like a sci-fi movie because of what the cover looks like or I thought it was just like going to be a ripoff of Dreamscape or maybe the aforementioned uh, Altered States which it really isn't. I mean except for the parts where it kind of is. So this movie is apparently one of only two directorial credits for a guy named Bruce R. Cook, who I guess is actually was more worked in like writing and editing, apparently. Uh, I read a, actually a couple of few reviews of this movie that mentioned that he had done some camera work. Like he wasn't the cinematographer, but I guess he was like the camera operator on the Brian Yesna film Society from 1989, which badass because that's an awesome movie. But if that is indeed the case, um, he didn't mention it on his IMDb. Like it's not on his resume on there. And he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I mean, even... The Wikipedia page, like, for Nightwish, the movie does have a Wikipedia page of its own, but it doesn't even have a plot synopsis. It's very, very, very scanty. Uh, so that's kind of how under the radar this thing is. Now, it did get a nice new Blu-ray transfer from Unearthed Records in 2019, and it's available on several streaming services nowadays. Like I said, um, I watched it on Tubi for free. You can also rent it on Amazon Prime for, like, three bucks or something. And I think, um, you know, not that I would ever advocate this, but I think that a couple people have uploaded it to YouTube as well. 
But it does seem like this movie was pretty obscure for a while there. And I will say that although this movie is not a masterpiece by any means, it's actually much better than I was expecting, much weirder than I was uh, than I was expecting, that's for sure. And it really does kind of deserve a bigger audience. I mean, especially if, you know, the audience that you're talking about is like in the market for kind of like a somewhat cheesy dream logic kind of narrative that is essentially just throwing everything it can think of into the casserole dish and just kind of like hoping for the best. Now, in spite of the relative, like, fell between the cracksitude, I guess, of Nightwish, it does actually have some recognizable actors in it that I'd seen in other things. Uh, and it must be said, it has some really good practical gore effects that were done by KNB, you know, Greg Nicotero and his uh, gang over there. Uh, the optical effects in there, which are kind of like CGI-ish, I don't even think they're CGI because I think they just like painted them like they're animated, like on the film. They don't look so great, but it's just kind of like par for the course for this era and for this budgetary level like they look as good as you know similar kind of things now probably the biggest names in this movie i feel like are brian thompson who probably best known as night slasher from cobra that 1986 like sylvester stallone movie and he was also in fright night part two like he played bosworth um, you also have Jack Starrett, who was in Blazing Saddles. He was in Race with the Devil. He was in First Blood. And then, kind of rounding out the cast, you have uh, Elizabeth Caton, I guess is how you pronounce her last name. She was in Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. She was in Friday the 13th Part 7, uh, The New Blood. You have... Alicia Das, who wasn't in a huge amount of stuff. She did some TV. I think she was on Santa Barbara, like that soap opera and a couple of other things. You have uh, Robert Tessier or Tessier. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. He was in uh, he was in a shit ton of stuff, like going back a long way. He was in the side hackers from 1968, which, you know, if you've probably seen if you're an MST fan like I am, uh, he was in The Deep, the movie that was based on the Peter Benchley novel. He was also in Star Crash, which is where I recognized him from. Uh, you also got Tom Dugan, who was in Marked for Death. He was in Leprechaun 3, Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, you have Arthur Cybulski, or Arthur Cybulski. He was in The Hunt for Red October, among other things. And Clayton Roner, who I recognized right away. He was actually in Just One of the Guys. I think that was his first movie. He was in April Fool's Day, which I think I've talked about on my channel before. He was also in I, Madman, which is another movie I have to get around to doing. And The Relic, among other things. He's still working nowadays, matter of fact. I think he was also in Human Centipede 3, <laughs> like if I remember correctly. Now, I'm going to try and give a breakdown of the plot, but keep in mind that it's probably not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, just be assured that all the stuff that I'm saying actually does happen in the movie. I'm not just tripping balls or making shit up just for the sake of making stuff up. Okay? Okay. So, we open up on the movie as a woman who we later learn is named Donna. She kind of comes out of this fancy party at a mansion at night, like she's walking out of the house. And she's wearing this very, like, a formal red dress and carrying her red high-heeled shoes in her hand. And she kind of seems like she's out on this big lawn and she's, like, looking for something. It's, like, so she comes across, like, a man's shoe and then, like, a bloody piece of clothing. I couldn't tell if it was, like, a sock or a shirt or something like that. And then she comes across, like, a severed hand. So then, like, as she continues walking after she's kind of like, huh, a severed hand... <laughs> I hate when you stumble across a severed hand when you're, like, walking around. But she uh, eventually comes across, like, a dude eating another dude. 
And she starts to run away, and then the cannibal guy, like, starts running after her. Now, so she's able to briefly evade the cannibal by basically standing just to one side of him and, like, counting on his lack of peripheral vision, I guess. And then she takes, like, one of her shoes and, like, throws it over her head and, like, makes a noise over there where she's like, ooh, and he's like, distracts him, you know what I mean? Now, because of the ridiculousness of the setup and because we've seen the cover and because we've seen... Uh, the kind of like tagline of the movie, which I think is something like in your dreams, no one can hear you scream or something like that. So we're like immediately suspicious that this is a dream sequence. And uh, before Donna can get munched by the cannibal, uh, our supposition is confirmed because Donna and her perky wet t-shirt and case boobies uh, wake up in a sort of like sensory deprivation tank, sort of, but like it's not really sensory deprivation because it's just basically floating in water and like everybody can just like look in on it, you know what I mean? So it's not the same thing. So she has like electrodes on her head and we see that she's actually in like a lab setting. There's a bunch of her colleagues standing around in white coats and they're, you know, presumably monitoring her progress or whatever it is she's doing. So it's established as we go on that these are all graduate students in the parapsychology program of whatever college this is. And they're being overseen by their professor, who I don't think is ever named, but is very clearly a weirdo. Now, it seems like the project that they're working on has to do with controlling dreams and in particular, seeing what will happen to you like if you die in your dream, like if that would rid your waking self of all fear of death or something like that. I'm not entirely clear on it. I'm probably going to say that a lot, just telling you right now. So, like, here's where the homage to A Nightmare on Elm Street kind of comes into play. But I don't want to, like, accuse it of being a ripoff of that because this movie is just such a crazy, like, patchwork quilt of influences that you can't really just accuse it of ripping off one thing because it's pretty much ripping off all the things, you know what I mean? And then becoming its own kind of, like, crazy gumbo in the process. So the professor actually seems a little bit miffed that Donna woke up before like the cannibal in the dream could eat her. So there's kind of like a little bit of back and forth about, you know, maybe there's something preventing, you know, these students test subjects because, you know, it's said that like the other students had done it as well from going all the way past the threshold of death in their dreams. Like maybe their brain is preventing them from doing it or something like that. Like I said, I wasn't entirely clear on it, but never mind that because... <laughs> Evidently, all this lab work that they're doing about dreams is just kind of like a preamble for this big field experiment that they're setting out on. The details of which, gotta say, are very, very murky. So you got three of the students. You got Donna, you got Jack, who's, that's Clayton Renner's character, and Kim, which is Alicia Doss's character. And they're riding in this van driven by this sociopathic chunkhead <laughs> named Dean, who's played by Brian Thompson, who basically goes out of his way to like run over bunny rabbits in the road, like on purpose, um, molests Kim at pretty much every opportunity, even though she sometimes seems to be into it for, I'm not really sure. And kind of like does weird shit, like making these animalistic, like grunting noises just to be obnoxious. I mean, it's, it's something. I'm not actually entirely sure what the point of Dean's character is because he could literally be removed from the movie without it making a lick of difference to the plot, but I'll get a little bit more into that later on. So the gang are heading out into the desert to this apparently long abandoned cabin mansion type deal where supposedly every conceivable horror and supernatural trope in the world 
has happened at some point or another. Not only is there an element of like eco horror, like in that there are kind of poisons or mineral elements or something like in the water supply in the area that caused like at some point in the past widespread deaths like mutations in the animals and the people intellectual disabilities like birth defects things like that but there have also been reports of ufos in the area there's local uh tribal legends about ancient aliens there's more tribal legends about monsters like coming out of the ground There's stories about this house in particular being haunted by the ghost of a little boy who died in an earthquake. Then there's the father of the same little boy who's kind of like a shitty robber baron type dude who built the house over a mine that he ran. Uh, Oh, and he was also exploiting like all the native workers like in the mine, you know what I mean? And some of them died in there as well. And the guy that owned the mine also conducted seances and satanic rituals in the house, which may or may not have summoned a demonic entity or entities. Did I forget anything? Probably. So a lot of this exposition is laid out as the students are like driving to this place in a van, like I said, like over the desert. Now, presumably the professor and the remaining student, whose name is Bill, got there ahead of them, like to set everything up because they're not in the van. Now, before the Scooby gang get to the house cabin mansion deal though, there's kind of like this long scene where they arrive at the gatehouse. It's kind of like a barn-ish, but shack, but with pigs. I don't really know. So it's a, they call it the gatehouse, though, so that's what I'm going to call it. Now, so they get there, and they find out that the professor hasn't left the gate unlocked like he said he would. So Dean has to, like, climb over the fence and, like, bust into the gatehouse to get the keys so he can open the gate and drive the van through. And then when he's in there, he meets this mentally challenged man named Wendell, who's played by Tom Dugan, who apparently takes care of the house and these farm animals that are there because reasons. Um, you know, and he's, like, eating cornflakes out of a bottle, like, Kellogg's cornflakes and also, like, throwing them to the animals, which you don't really see until later. Like, so it just looks like he's throwing them around in the yard. It's, like, really, really weird. So the van group finally get to the main house and they set up their equipment doing kind of like vaguely parapsychological stuff we're degaussing things we're taking temperature readings all that kind of stuff like you see on the ghost hunting shows now dean the chunkhead um he's apparently not one of the grad students because he just drops them off at the house and then he says he'll be back later to pick them up so like every now and then as the movie is unfolding and getting crazier and crazier, there'll be like a random scene of Dean just like driving the van like through the desert, like listening to the radio and shit. And I'm not really entirely sure like what purpose this serves. I mean, I'm guessing that, um, you know, Bruce R. Cook, the writer director, I'm guessing he wanted the grad students to get dropped off at this house so there wouldn't be a vehicle there like for them to escape in possibly. But I think I could have found some like other way around that rather than adding this entire character who doesn't really seem to need to be there and doesn't really factor into the plot in any way. But I don't know. It seems like a weird thing to complain about when everything in this movie like is just completely nonsensical. But you know, there it is. Back at the mansion, though, the professor leads the students in a seance 
which immediately seems to be working out like really really well you know because like all the cameras and stuff start going haywire like the polaroids taking pictures by itself like the doors like slam it open and closed and all this other kind of stuff and then this like bright green glow starts emanating out of the fireplace and shortly after that this kind of like glowing green animated cgi snake or something like comes out the fireplace and it seems to be interested in kim particularly but before it can do anything like donna freaks out and hits it with her purse which seems to like smush it but then it just kind of disappears and then there's like no trace of it left behind like it was ghostly or some shit so after that whole traumatic uh situation the professor and bill reveal that all this stuff like with the door and the equipment like the camera taking pictures by itself and stuff was faked because the professor wanted to see how they would react to like paranormal stuff going on i'm presuming but he does concede that the ectoplasm which i'm guessing means like the green animated snake was real but this admission that he makes um it's not even entirely solid uh anyway because as the evening goes on the professor keeps making several references to the entity in the house and how it's able to cause hallucinations and he also keeps telling the students to not trust one another and to watch each other for signs of irrational behavior. So it's almost kind of like they're doing, they're almost doing like a paranoia thing, like the thing, you know what I mean? Like you don't know, you know, if somebody's just like seeing things or if you're seeing things and shit like that. So they're kind of trying to like sow a sort of like mistrust in the viewer, I guess. Turns out, though, speaking of irrational behavior, that it's probably the professor that they should have been keeping an eye on this whole time because uh, he appears to be a wee bit of a lunatic, just, just a tad. So, like, at one point, he handcuffs all the students and himself to the walls. I'm not entirely sure how he managed that. Um, and he attempts to summon the entity, whatever it is, with a pentagram, like, drawn on the floor. So, like I said, there's, like, satanic shit in here, too. Now, this sort of works because, like, a green light tornado kind of thing, like, comes out of the dirt, like, comes out of the um, the floor. But Bill, like, wigs out and pees himself, and, like, he literally pees himself, and screams for the entity to go back where it came from. Um, the professor gets mad because he's like, you know, that was the only time we actually summoned it and he fucked it up. And then he seems to, like, stab Bill to death, like, in the stomach. Um, and then it's also revealed that the professor has, like, another previously unknown, like, confederate in the form of this b big hulking, like, bald dude who's also mentally challenged. Because I'm guessing they're making a reference back to, you know, the stuff in the water in this area, like, making everybody have birth defects and be, like, intellectually challenged and whatnot. So I guess it's that. But this guy's name is uh, Stanley. He's played by Robert Tessier. Tessier or Tessier. And he's kind of like the professor's muscle, I guess. Uh, so, yeah. So, he takes away Bill's body, we presume. And also, at some point, like, when Jack does something to piss him off, he comes in and, like, cuts off one of the fingers on Jack's right hand. Although, in some scenes, it's his left hand. So... <laughs> So as the movie goes on, uh, the surviving students like, you know, do various things like they get chased by Stanley and are eventually forced to participate in the professor's mystifying experiment, whatever the fuck it is. And sometimes even though like all this crazy shit is happening, they don't seem all that mad at him or they don't seem to be like ganging up on him like, hey, we got to get out of here or anything. It's like really, really weird, like tonally. Yeah. So I don't really know what the end game is here. 
Now, like, some of the things that happen, like, in this kind of middle part of the movie, like, in the attic, for example, Jack and Donna, I think it was, see the ghost of the little boy who died in the earthquake, like, that they mentioned earlier, but he's never mentioned again. Like, they see him one time, and they see him, like, get smushed, and then he disappears. Um, the supposedly dead Bill, who got stabbed, he returns to life at one point, like, toward the end, but maybe not, because... He might just be housing some gooey alien babies. And maybe also the professor is also maybe an alien who's using the students' bodies to incubate extraterrestrial offspring of his own. Uh, There's a scene very much like the scene from Alien, like where Ripley finds all the humans like attached to the walls and like covered with slime. They're like incubating alien babies and whatnot. Uh, At one point, like Bill falls to the ground, his skull, or he gets his skull cracked open by Kim and bugs come out. Um, there's one scene where Jack seems to, like, be in two places at once, and in one of the places that he's at, he actually, like, encases Donna's head in a clear plastic box that is, by the way, also filled with tarantulas. Um, Dean actually eventually, like, arrives back at the house, like, to pick up the students, and he actually, like, stops at the gatehouse and he finds Wendell dead, and it looks like he hanged himself but then he also has like alien shit like all over his back like it looks like it's it's all body horror and gross and then once dean gets to the regular house like kim finds him later and he's still alive but his arms and legs have been cut off and like he has like alien boils like all over him like again like he's incubating alien babies so kim is the only one that ends up escaping Uh, Even though she appears to have totally lost it and seemingly believes everybody else has been taken over by aliens, even though they keep telling her, no, all of this is hallucinations. So she hops in Dean's van, because everyone else is dead, apparently, or she thinks they're aliens or whatever, and she speeds off, and then, like, the green ectoplasm snake thing, like, twines itself around her limbs, and it causes her to drive the van off a cliff. Now, if you've been following this movie at all, which good luck to you, I'm I'm just telling you that right now, but if you've kind of like gotten in the vibe of this movie, it will not surprise you uh, that just like at the beginning of the movie, uh, the whole thing was a dream because right after Kim like drives the van off the cliff, she wakes up in the same sensory deprivation tank deal as Donna did before. And everybody is standing in the lab, like totally alive and well, including like some of the other peripheral characters like Stanley, who's like a janitor in this reality and like other, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, it's kind of like the end of wizard of Oz where it's like, and you were there and you were there. You know what I mean? Like everybody's playing different roles. It's that kind of situation. However, though, this ending is also like the, it was all a dream. You know what I mean? But this is all, also kind of like a fake out because Kim immediately starts to suspect even though she just woke up in the lab that she's still dreaming and she's like gets up and she's acting all paranoid and then she opens the door to go out of the lab presumably but then there's like another door just like that one like behind it and then there's another one behind that and then she opens it and then she sees that green light again and then there's Stanley like covered with blood and menacing her and like Donna is all like hanging up with her guts hanger or something like that so I'm guessing, okay, I'm not really sure. This is how I read it, and I'm not sure if this is correct or even if correct has any meaning in this situation. I am thought that we were led to assume, or we were meant to conclude, rather, that because Kim had finally died 
by going off the cliff in the van, like in her dream. Because I guess the whole movie was a dream, or was it? I don't know really, it's one of those kind of situations. But I'm guessing because she died in the dream, like now she's stuck in this nightmare forever and like she can't get out. I mean, I don't know. Um, That's how I interpreted it. But Nightwish definitely seems like the kind of movie where arguments could really be made for pretty much any potential interpretation that you would care to come up with. I mean, it really is that batshit. You could really argue that the whole entire thing was a dream, like even the stuff with like inside the lab and everything like that, but I don't know. Does it matter? I guess not. Now, I did feel that the whole is it a dream or not vibe, that whole narrative, I think that that was mostly used to kind of justify just tossing a bunch of kind of cool but random tropes into the pot and also kind of like just to paper over any inconsistencies in the script. Like I said, you know, where Jack gets one of his fingers cut off and it's like it's clearly on his right hand, but then like in a, a scene or two later is on his left hand. And if you pointed that out, it's like, oh, that was a continuity error. They'll be like, no, no, it was a dream. That's how he were, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like, if you say it was a dream, then all bets are off. Then you don't really have, then nothing has to make any sense. So I do kind of feel like they were leaning on that a little bit. But all that said, I can't deny that this movie was actually pretty entertaining. Even though I, you know, I gotta admit, I would be lying if I said that I had the faintest idea what the fuck was going on in this thing through most of the movie. I mean, it's it's baffling. It's baffling. Um, now, the effects in it, like particularly the body horror and like the alien stuff are actually really good. Um, and a lot of the cinematography and like the shot compositions and stuff like that were way better than they had any right to be, like in a movie with this low of a budget. Um, there was also a lot of gratuitous new nudity like if you're into that so you know both the both the ladies show their boobies at some point you know and I know some people like that uh, and they're nice boobies so there's that now I will say that the acting was a little bit uneven uh, I could have done without the Dean character because and nothing against that actor because I do like that actor but you know he was just like this annoying chode whose presence in the movie was completely superfluous like he was just he didn't like factor into the plot at all um, but other than that, like overall, this was a pretty fun, if like I said, kind of baffling <laughs> slice of late 80s weirdness that I kind of feel like could not have been made in any other era than when it was made. You know what I'm saying? It's so, so 80s and it's just so bizarre. And even though not all of it works, I kind of feel like this, this kind of thing is like cool to come across because it's just like this bizarre ass movie that most people probably haven't even seen or heard of. And it's always kind of nice to find something like that, even if it's not, you know, a big masterpiece or anything like that. I would kind of recommend it if you like stuff like, um, you know, if you like like Stuart Gordon stuff or Brian Yuzna's kind of stuff, maybe like Wes Craven a little bit, maybe even Ken Russell. It's not quite as out there as Ken Russell, but it's along those lines. Like I said, it's kind of like has some altered states if Altered States was, like, way cheesier and then also had, like, Stuart Gordon kind of stuff. Or it's, like, I don't even want to say it's Lovecraftian. It's not quite Lovecraftian. It has, like, a slight, slight edge of Lovecraftian in it, but not exactly. But it's, like I said, it's kind of like all movies and no movies. There's just so much stuff going on. It's, like, I, I don't even think that I scratched the surface of all the shit that's going on in this movie. And I can't really understand, like, why. I don't know. It just seemed like I'm only going to make, like, maybe the guy thought I'm only going to make one movie, like, you know, in my life. So I'm just going to put everything in it 
because it definitely has that feel to it where it's just like you know it it's one thing to just say oh it's aliens or something like that but it's like no i want aliens and dreams and seances and satanists and possession and you know and haunted house and like all this other i mean it was everything everything was in there i can't think of a single subgenre. there's even like a slasher kind of element to it too like a hills have eyes not a real hill well it is kind of like hills have eyes because of all the mutations and all that kind of stuff like in the desert so it's like i can't think of really like a single subgenre that they did not touch on in this movie in one way or another, which is actually kind of an impressive feat. Like now that you think of it, now that I think about it. So that will do it for this flickers of here. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.